podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. At this point, they said that Faulkner was so good looking that women came to the ground just to watch him play. These women were obviously not cricket purists, as from a cricketing standpoint, Faulkner was functional, handmade, a little bit of rough. His kit really matched and was often dirty, and he once played an entire test match with a piece of string holding up his trousers. In Great Characters from Cricket's Golden Age, Jeremy Malays describes his bowling like this. For such a natural athlete, his run-up was surprisingly craggy and ungainly. It included several stutters, and he would arrive at the wicket with elbows pumping madly in the manner of Bob Willis. He sounds a lot more like a drunk uncle than a polished test match bowler. But at the crease, all that coaching and tinkering unfurled into a very respectable leg spin action. Repeatable. Barely beatable. Faulkner would land it on a length, turn the ball both ways without any hint of which way it would go. He had endless endurance for these Herculean spells and also had a fast Yorker that destroyed batters. With the bat, Faulkner was two-eyed. While most batters of his era were side-on, Faulkner stood very open. His bottom hand was in charge. And as the bowler came in, he flexed it aggressively over the grip. His back was always arched over, as if his bat was a little bit too small for him. And so, like with many broad-shoulder batters, the piece of wood often looked like a toy when he swung it. Faulkner would defend with good, if not slightly eccentric, footwork. And when he hit the ball, he did so with the same kind of power that his father had once borne the brunt of. In the field, Faulkner was mostly in the slips, but they said there wasn't a position where he couldn't master it. In fact, they said there wasn't a cricket skill once taught that he couldn't perform at the highest level. Richards and Swartz had just given him a little bit of coaching, but the rest of his game really came from Faulkner coaching himself. In many ways, he was like a golden era version of Jacques Callis, but with Bob Warmer's mind. Welcome to Double Century, a podcast by me, Jared Kimber, on the history of cricket brought to you by 99.94. This is part two in my series on one of my favourite cricketers of all time, Aubrey Faulkner. For 866 days, or nearly two and a half years, after scoring 42 at the Oval in 1907, Faulkner played no test cricket. South Africa drew the first match of that series, which was their first draw away from home, after being made to follow on. On a soft wicket at Headingley, England trudged off to lunch after a slow first morning, only one wicket down. But after lunch, Faulkner happened. The ball spun viciously in both directions. No one seemed to be able to tell which way. And this with the wicket actually slowing the ball down. Faulkner took 6 for 17 from 11 overs. However, England still eventually won by 53 runs and took the series. On that tour, the four leg spinners combined for 228 first-class wickets. It got to the point where some Englishmen suggested that the wrong end was an unfair delivery. And when Faulkner bowled it specifically, it was said to be virtually undetectable. When he did finally play in his next test, also against England at the old Wanderers ground in Johannesburg in January of 1910, he top scored with 78 and then bowled 33 overs, mostly unchanged. He took five for 120. He then came in at number six with South Africa fewer than 30 runs ahead and made 123 out of the 216 runs they added at that point. 
he dragged South Africa past 300, leaving England 244 to chase. Vogler took most of the top order. England were eight wickets down and needed 46. But George Thompson wouldn't budge, and Henry Shrimp Levison Gower was also well set. Inevitably, Faulkner took the wicket of Levison Gower. And then, with England needing only 20, he dismissed Thompson as well. South Africa were 1 0 up, and Faulkner was carried around the ground like a king. And they won that series. In five of the 10 innings, Faulkner top scored 545 runs at 60, 29 wickets at under 22. Faulkner is an extraordinary cricketer, said English player Teddy Winwood in the Rand Daily Mail. A great player with a great future. And sadly, he was only half right. While Faulkner was a great player, he did not have a great future. At this point, Faulkner had already played more than half the tests he would ever play. And he would never play another test match in South Africa. In 1925, an ad started appearing in the Cricketer magazine. It was a cricket school run by a test cricketer. Plum Warner Warner and Levison Gower were noted as directors, but it was called the Faulkner School of Cricket. And it was, and is still believed to be, the first full-time cricket school. A young Scottish cricketer named Ian Peebles had seen the ad, and when he visited London once, he made two special visits. One was to Lord's, and the other was to Faulkner's school. When Peebles arrived, he was expecting a utopia. Lush green pitches, test cricketers lined up around the bar, the best cricket bat strewn around the place. Wide open spaces, or at the least, as he wrote in his book, Spinner's Yarn, a beautifully kept expanse of turf with a number of nets in orderly rows. Instead, he walked into a barely reformed garage in Petersham Road, Richmond. It was so cramped, more than one batter had hooked the ball onto themselves, and the electric light bulbs were very poor. The fuse box, just above the bowler's head, had once exploded as a bowler lost control when he let go of the ball. The school was as shoddy and unorthodox as the man himself, but also as effective. Faulkner saw Peebles' ball and knew that there was something special there. Excitedly, he kept telling his assistant, look what I have found. Later, Faulkner invited Peebles to lunch, which is a moment that Peebles recounts in his book. Faulkner said, if you come to London, you could be my secretary. Peebles responded with, if I did, do you think I would ever play for a county? Faulkner answered, if you come to me, you go a damn sight further than that. He offered Peebles a dream and half of his sandwich. Peebles moved to London. Despite the shabby location and lack of amenities, the school was a dream for young boys with aspirations of cricket. A 12-year-old could enter and walk past the renowned cricket writer Home Gordon, who was deep in conversation with Plum Warner. He could pad up just as Douglas Jardine was leaving for the day. The boy could then enter the nets and work under the tutelage of a soon-to-be or current first-class player. As he learned his forward defence, he could have been standing next to the great Dulip Sinji, who was fine-tuning his near-perfect offside game. For young players, this was worth far more than the 10 shillings Faulkner charged for the 15 minutes of batting and 45 minutes of bowling. In fact, many people who went through there as a young age said that they could never charge enough for the magic he created in that shed. And he didn't discriminate on talent or status. He was as thorough when coaching a village duffer as he was with the son of the Chinese ambassador. He gave simple explanations. He had the Faulkner method, 
And he made sure that everyone came through and knew exactly what that was. If you had a weakness as a batter, he could find it and put every ball there until you improved. As a bowler, if you used your wrist to spin the ball, one session with Faulkner and you'd be twice the bowler you were before. Also, on occasions, he'd still put on the odd clinic with the ball. Jack McBrien, a Somerset amateur who made over 10,000 first-class runs, was working on something in the nets one day and he was facing Faulkner. McBrien couldn't work out which way the ball was spinning. And according to Peebles, he eventually threw the bat down, stormed out and said, I can't play this bloody stuff. They said of Faulkner that he played with all his heart and mind. And apparently, he coached the same way. But there's a great story of his time in Australia before that, where Faulkner was in the SCG nets, just out back of the ladies' stand. And he was working on his batting. But he was also listening, listening for that noise. And it wouldn't be long, and it never was. And then it came, that abusive, guttural, and communal shout that Australian crowds do better than any other country. Faulkner left the nets, walked straight into the middle, and batted for his country. And in 1910-11, on that particular tour, he had to bat 10 times for his country. And that guttural noise from that shouting Australian crowd came at 39 for 3, 44 for 3, 34 for 1, 1 for 1, 31 for 1, 10 for 1, 7 for 1, 2 for 1, 4 for 1, and then finally 64 for 2. Faulkner was almost always in early on, no matter where he was in the batting lineup. And what he was really trying to do was train himself how to play in Australian conditions. These weren't matting pitches, and they weren't like the soft English wickets he was also good at. These were alien to him, and he knew he had to be better than ever before. And so on that tour, he shut out much of his socialising and just got into a zone. And on the first day of the series, Australia scored 494. Albert Tibby Cotter then ran through South Africa. Well, everyone except for Faulkner who made 62 and 43 as his team lost by an innings. The second test began on New Year's Eve at the MCG, and Australia attacked again, this time making 348 before they were bowled out. Faulkner walked in early on the second day and was still in on the third morning. He made an incredible double century. His defensive game was solid, and when the bad ball came, the bad ball went. He played so well off the back foot, newspapers reported that his shot sounded like a pistol. When he was playing off the back foot, he was so good that newspapers described it as like a pistol shot. He scored more than half of South Africa's runs on day two. The Melbourne Argus said it was nothing iconoclastic, but just a great innings on a great occasion. But before this, no South African had scored 150, and it took 25 years for someone to score more than Aubrey Faulkner did. In fact, it took Jacques Callis more than 150 tests to go past that as his highest score. It may not have been iconoclastic, but it was iconic. He was finally out for 204, and South Africa's first innings lead was over 150. Faulkner had given them a great chance of their first away win. Then, Victor Trumper scored a better-than-a-runnable 159. The next highest score was 48. No one else in the world at that time could have changed that match so quickly, so powerfully. Faulkner's innings had been brilliant, methodical, and stoic. Trumper blew it away like it didn't even happen. South Africa still only needed 170. Faulkner decided to drop anchor, but according to the reports at the time, he appeared to freeze in a defensive trance on what was still, by all accounts, a decent wicket. 
When the score was 46, he was the fifth man out for only eight. South Africa would fall for 80. It should have been Faulkner's greatest moment. Instead, he was blamed for the loss. But by this point, the team knew they needed help. They needed a batting coach. And Faulkner was the only player on the field who could stand up to the Australians. He had by then transcended this poor team, becoming an almost godlike figure to them. They approached him carefully, and he helped them with what he would later call the Faulkner method. Play forward in defence, play straight. Smack the ball when it's short, never miss a run off your pads. And in his cricket coaching book, Cricket Can It Be Taught, he says, is it better to teach boys nothing but strokes or merely defence? The correct answer to which is surely, teach the young fellows all you can of both, for batting is neither wholly one nor the other, but a happy blending of the two. In Adelaide, all Faulkner's method and his teamwork paid off because South Africa scored as a team, not just on his back. And his second innings, 115, gave South Africa a lead of 377. Had the ICC rankings been around then, Faulkner just became the world's number one batter. And it's worth pointing out that at times, he also would have been ranked the world's number two bowler. And he did actually take a couple of wickets as well, which helped South Africa win their first ever away match. And the Australians loved him cheering Faulkner through almost all of his 732 runs in that series. That haul was better than what the second and third best South African batters made combined. Thanks for listening to Double Central. This podcast is part of the 99.94 Network. You can download our app to listen to more content there. In the future, 99.94 will have cricket commentary and many different podcasts for you to enjoy. If you like this podcast, you might like our other one, Red Income, where we occasionally talk about history, but mostly we focus on cricket today and the themes and the way the game is changing. We also have a YouTube channel, which you can find by searching for Jared Kimber. On this, we have the entire history of New Zealand opening batters and also an historical 11 made of players who never played T20, but how they might have fared in the modern game. This podcast is funded by our supporters on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes or just Google Jared Kimber Patreon. This is obviously not an easy series to find advertising for. And the more money that we have, the more episodes we can make. So any way you could support us is appreciated. Double Centric is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. And Nick McCorriston is our producer. Sports Social Podcast Network.